Hey, welcome to Access. John here. Do you ever find yourself questioning if your faith in Jesus was misplaced? It's okay, you can be honest. Each of us goes through a season of doubt from time to time. However, God has given us His Word not only to sustain our faith, but to strengthen it. So if you've ever wondered to yourself, what if God isn't really out there at all? Then this message is for you. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6, verses 1 through 21, because this message is entitled, See of Doubt. Do you ever find yourself second-guessing your faith in God? Like, maybe you wonder if God is really out there at all. You know, I'm a believer that never facing any kind of skepticism that might be in our heart, that doesn't make us more godly. It makes us irrational. I mean, God has given us the ability and the freedom to wonder and ask the important questions of life. And every single time I've questioned God or asked some significant question regarding my faith and and understanding it, not only has God not abandoned me for my lack of faith, He's been faithful in giving me a deeper appreciation for Scripture, and He has strengthened my faith at the same time. So if you've ever silently wondered, is God really out there? or had a significant season of doubt about the Bible and the miracles it talks about, then understand that doesn't make you sinful. That doesn't make you ungodly. God gave you a brain to use. And this doesn't mean that you must completely understand before you believe. For Proverbs 3, 5 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on on your own understanding. So no, you don't have to completely understand before you can believe. But you can understand what you believe and why you believe it. So if you leave with anything today, I hope that you leave knowing that God's word is sufficient for answering your questions, the deep questions of life. This isn't just because of the words that are written in the Bible, but because God regularly speaks to us through the Bible by way of the Holy Spirit. Now, I know it's a lot to ask of a person who's questioning the legitimacy and the authenticity of Scripture. They might ask, why should I believe what the Bible says? And it would be unreasonable for us to respond, well, because the Bible says so. However, we must keep in mind that we can't convince anyone to believe in God. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. What we can know is that the Bible is one of the few ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to us. In fact, the Bible even speaks as to why many refuse to look for to him and to the Bible for answers. And it's not because they're so much more intelligent or because they're more educated, but because they're ignorant. Ephesians 4, 17 through 18 says, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their own hearts. In other words, people don't believe because they don't want to. Every time I feel guilty, I can't harden my heart and turn away from God. Every time I feel under conviction, I can't turn my back on God and say, well, you know, I'm just going to ignore it. Because if I were to do that, if I were to refuse to turn to God, then I would be ignorant to the ways of God. So then I wouldn't understand what scripture is talking about. In other words, People who refuse and reject God, they do that because they don't want to be around Him. And although questions of faith can arise, often from a place of arrogance and a hardened heart, 
I just want you to know it doesn't mean that questioning our faith is ungodly. Much of the time, these questions can help sharpen our faith and can be very beneficial. Sometimes we we read um, some extremely hard-to-believe stories from the Bible. How do we reconcile what our hearts believe and what what our minds are able to rationalize? I had several professors at school that surrendered to the belief that the miracles of Scripture were allegorical and not literal. You know, they taught miraculous, uh, the miraculous things of the Bible always had a scientific explanation or they didn't happen. They believed that these things were recorded in Scripture to teach us an allegorical lesson instead of these things actually happening. Now, my question was always, why can't it be both? Well, in today's passage of Scripture, we're going to read about three big miracles that Jesus did that was written in the book of John and the literal realities as well as the allegorical messages behind them. Now, something important to note is that each of these miracles take place on or around the Sea of Galilee. In fact, many of Jesus' miracles did. Um, Because so many of Jesus' miracles happen on or around the Sea of Galilee, it could indicate that this is the most common geographical location of skepticism on the face of the earth. So before we begin reading today's passage of Scripture, I want want to tell you there are some interesting facts about the Sea of Galilee that we might find useful in our study. For example, it's located in northern Israel, and the Jordan River flows from it to to the Dead Sea. So it flows south to the Dead Sea. Now, um, most of Israel was separated by the Jordan River, which was another location where several miracles took place in the Old Testament. So um, the Sea of Galilee is around 13 miles from north to south and only 6 miles across from east to west. And it's almost completely surrounded by high mountain ridges and hills, which means that not only is it easily possible to see from one side to the other, which could explain how people were able to follow Jesus so easily, but there were often, uh, there's often a strong wind, sometimes circular wind, that would, that would uh, make the waters choppy, perhaps even deadly, which gives us an appropriate setting for Jesus to calm the storm. So let's look at what Scripture has to say about this body of water um, that, that many might identify as the Sea of Doubt. Not the Sea of Galilee, but the Sea of Doubt. I doubt that happened there. So uh, I'm going to read John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. This is what it says. It says, Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because he saw the miraculous signs, they saw the miraculous signs that he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite, or eight months' wages. Um, Another of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. And when they had all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Nothing, Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled the twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. 
After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and take him, make, and came and make him, by, make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Now, reading this passage of scripture, it raises the question. Did Jesus really feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish? I mean, this passage of Scripture certainly creates skepticism. Wouldn't it make more sense that, that the things that were said about Jesus were just exaggerated by men who wanted to see his story become more incredible? I mean, isn't it more likely that people just weren't hungry by the time Jesus was talking? And then he actually did something as impossible as feeding 5,000 people with such a little amount of food. Why should we believe what the Bible has to say? Well, for starters, we know that the outer biblical sources, sources that are hostile towards the Christian faith, um, they recognize that Jesus did miracles. For example, the Jewish historian Josephus in the Babylonian Talmud mentioned that Jesus was a magician and that he used his sorcery to divide, deceive the people and divide them. So, um, you see, they weren't arguing that Jesus didn't do miraculous things, but that he did miraculous things in order to deceive people. Why would they confirm that Jesus did miracles if it wasn't widely believed that he did? In Scripture, Jesus does miracles in front of the Pharisees, the Jewish, the hard Jews. And, and they said that it was only by the power of Satan that he was able to do these things. Why would they need an explanation as to how he was able to do these things if what was said about him was widely exaggerated. In truth, these writings won't convince anyone about the existence of God. And I just bring them up to show that Scripture can be confirmed and validated by outer biblical sources. Contrary to popular belief, Scripture is able to authenticate itself, which is why we can say, if you want to know how the Bible is true, read the Bible. Many of the details of Scripture are so exact, it leads itself wide open for contradiction, but it just confirms that what is written is actually true. Would it surprise you um, that this is one of the few miracles that is written in each of the four Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all include Jesus feeding 5,000. You know, in John 6, it says that Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee to, Tiberius, to Tiberias, and many people followed him. Not because they believed he was the Messiah, but because he was able to do incredible things. It says in verse 3 that Jesus went up on the mountainside and that the Jewish Passover feast was near. This point is extremely important if you're going to understand the discourse Jesus is about to go into about how he is the bread of life in the latter part of John chapter 6. Jesus is going to use the Passover bread, a clearly recognizable object to every single Jew, as an object lesson for the Jewish people. Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 18:15, "The Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him." And Jesus was intentional about showing the correlation that he was the prophet that was promised, but also that Moses didn't truly understand the significance of who this prophet was. Jesus didn't meet God on a mountain like Moses did. He was God on the mountain. Where previously these people were afraid to go up on the mountain to see God and instead sent Moses to be the mediator and to say, come back, Moses, tell us what he says. Jesus drew them up the mountain by his kindness and miraculous works. And once upon the mountain, 
Scripture says he looked upon them with compassion. Not righteous indignation that they associated with God the Father. That they would be smitten as soon as they were in his presence. Whereas these people should have been preparing for the Passover, they were instead following him because of his miracles. Which should show us that God knows what is necessary to draw us closer to himself. And we need to lose our agendas for our lives and instead look to God's agenda for us. Jesus looks at Philip and asks him, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Why Philip? Well, because Philip was from Bethsaida, and uh, that was only about nine miles away. So essentially, Jesus looked at Philip and said, hey, Philip, you know the area pretty well. Where can a guy and his friends get a bite to eat around here? Are you surprised Philip didn't say, oh, you know, Belisera is just right down the road. It's a pretty nice place to eat. I'll call ahead and make a reservation. I mean, because could you imagine? Jesus, table for 5,000. Philip responds, eight months' wages or 200 denarii would not be enough to ensure that everyone even had a bite, much less that they would have their fill. John said that Jesus asked Philip to test him. In other words, Philip had been prepared for this, and he should have known the answer by now, but his faith was weak. In the book of Mark, it says at the end of, of today's passage, you know, where we talk about uh, walking on water and whatnot, uh, that, that their hearts were hardened because they did not understand what Jesus was trying to communicate about the bread. Now, um, I, I believe that John, you know, he, he, he points out Philip, he should have been prepared for this, but in the book of Matthew, it says the disciples tried to send the people away. And Jesus said, no, you give them something to eat. And I think this, this, this message that Jesus is trying to share with his disciples, this is more about the disciples than it is about the Jews. I think he was trying to show them that there will be times when God puts a problem in front of you that you can't solve. And instead of trying to find the solution on, on, on your own, you must look to him for the solution. Scripture tells us that a small boy came forward with five small loaves of bread and two fish. And John uses this passage to show the contrast between the disciples who looked inwardly for a way to fix this problem as opposed to a small boy who simply brought Jesus what he had. Now, I can imagine the boy likely saying, you know, I know it's not much, and it likely won't make a difference. But you can have what I have. Here's my lunch to use as you see fit. Now, this is an important lesson for every single one of us. When we look at the world with all of its problems, do you honestly believe that you can make a difference? I mean, just look at Rungi with its drug addictions and its gangs and, and, and its child abuse and its theft and its violence. Do you honestly believe that you can change things? Why would Jesus call his disciples to feed the people anyway? Couldn't he have simply snapped his fingers and had a meal placed in front of them? Sure, but you see, God chooses to use us as the means to do his work in the world. And believe it or not, God has placed us in Rungi to do his work. Or wherever you are, wherever you are, God has placed you there to do his work. So instead of sending them away or thinking that it's somebody else's problem, God tells us, no, you do something about it. And instead of looking inward to fix these problems, we must simply look to him and say, Lord, I know it's not much, and it probably won't make a difference, but you can have what I have. 
Here's my life to use as you see fit. Little is always more than sufficient when God is in it. In fact, there were 12 basketfuls of scraps left over. Jesus gave them the bread from heaven. And I believe this is in reference to the manna, which Jesus will again refer to later on in John chapter 6. He's setting the stage for what he, this important truth he's about to bring in. But why 12 leftover baskets? Well, I know 12 is a special number, and you can get into the numerology of Scripture. And, and, and I, what I'm about to say is purely conjecture, since Scripture doesn't imp- explain very well, and it doesn't explain at all. But I do find it interesting that there were 12 of Jesus' disciples, and they most likely couldn't have carried more than one basket each. Perhaps for each one to carry a basket full of leftovers was a powerful reminder about how they each wondered what they were going to do before Jesus intervened. God's often very funny that way. He's got a sense of humor. If we will come forward with what we have, God will show us how greatly we can be used to advance the work of his kingdom. And it's all because he's working through us. He'll give us more than what we need to do what he's calling us to do. Now, another important thing to note about this story is that only the men were counted. If women and children were there, which they likely were, the number Jesus fed was much greater than 5,000. So did Jesus really feed 5,000 people with two, two fish and five loaves of bread? No, Jesus fed much more than that. The number was more likely 15,000 to 20,000 people, maybe more. They just counted the men. Notice in verse 14 that the people recognized Jesus as the prophet. Not a prophet, but the prophet. This was in reference to the prophet that Moses spoke about. And that in verse 15, Jesus knew they wanted to take him by force to be their king. This should show the heart of all people, not just the Jews. The Jews looked forward to the Messiah so they could be liberated from their physical captivity, but they didn't care about the spiritual captivity that they lived in. They didn't care that they were living their lives far away from God. They just didn't want to deal with the consequence of their sin. And sure, they prided themselves on being God's people, but they had no intentions of living for him. Which is why Jesus told them in John 5, 39, you know, you guys diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me and have life. If they had really looked to God for life, they would have seen Jesus not just as an earthly king, but as the heavenly king. In truth, we don't really want Jesus to be Lord. We just want Jesus to be our Savior. We want to be delivered from the consequence of our sins so we can continue to live our lives far away from God. Don't be surprised, however, when you only look to Jesus for salvation from hell and you don't surrender to him as Lord. Because if this is all you really want, Jesus will walk away from you too. I want to continue reading John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. It says, When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark, and Jesus has not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing, and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed three, three or three and a half miles, um, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore 
where they were heading. Now, listen about this story. Did Jesus really walk on water and teleport his disciples to their destination miles away? I mean, doesn't it sound more likely that Jesus walked in ankle-deep water and that this story is vastly exaggerated? Wouldn't it make more sense that, that, that there was a heavy fog and the disciples just couldn't see how far the shore was away from them and Jesus really walked up to them on the shore? Well, thankfully, the other Gospels help fill in several of the blanks that John leaves in this passage. Matthew 14, for example, tells us that immediately before Jesus fed the 5,000 and walked on water, that his heart was troubled because his cousin John the Baptist was beheaded, and so Jesus withdrew to a solitary place to pray. Mark 6 tells us that Jesus, because he was upset, sent his disciples ahead of him, and about 10 o'clock at night, that's when his disciples were straining at the oars because they were against the great wind that had come against them to keep them from their destination. That is interesting because it is impossible to have a heavy fog in a strong wind. It's then we see Jesus walking out on the water towards them. Mark tells us that they they thought Jesus was a ghost. And Matthew tells us that Peter got out of the boat after he realized it was Jesus and actually walked towards Jesus. And it says that Peter took his eyes off of Jesus and then he looked and the large waves and, and, the, and the wind was blowing it and he began to sink and he almost drowned. How in the world would Peter begin to drown in ankle deep water? John tells us that the disciples had been rowing for three to four miles. To travel from Tiberias to Bethsaida across the Sea of Galilee was about a, uh, about a seven to eight mile trip. And if they were really only about, uh, you know, what, what John says, they, they rowed three, three and a half miles, maybe four miles, then they were about only halfway. And, and the water here is at least 30 feet deep, maybe even deeper. Simon Peter cries out for Jesus to save him, and Jesus rescues him, and they welcome him into the boat. And John tells us in John 6, 21, that as soon as they welcomed him to the boat, they immediately arrived at the shore where they were going. Remember, Scripture tells us they were only halfway through their journey, which means they were three to four miles away from shore, from their destination. Is this really suggesting that Jesus not only teleported himself and his disciples across the water, but the whole ship as well? I mean, that goes against the laws of physics, right? A person can't just walk on water, and people can't be teleported from one place to the next. It's scientifically impossible. Well, if it's a scientific impossibility, let me ask you a question. If God really created the world, like Scripture says he did, if he was the one to create and enforce the laws of physics and nature, couldn't he also change them whenever he wanted? You see, we Christians believe in a God that not only created the earth, but came to earth as a man by being born, born of a virgin, something that's impossible. We believe he was crucified on a cross, and after being buried in a tomb, he rose from the dead three days later and defeated death. That is impossible, yet we believe it. <coughs> we know it's crazy. But we believe he laid down his life for us and he took it up again. <clears throat> and this isn't by irrationability that we've received this truth. It is by the Holy Spirit revealing it to us. And if Jesus can do that, do these other things to do them, would they really be so far-fetched? 
Now consider for a moment that maybe all of these things <coughs> were written as an allegory. What's the point? Well, I think the point of this story is that it shows us how Jesus has mastery over nature. It's not good old Mother Nature and Father Time. It's simply Jesus and God's creation. The point of this story is to show us how we can go through life trying to get from one place to the next. You know, I need to buy a car, and I need to get a job, and I need to get married, and then I need to have kids, and then I need to buy a house, and then I need to build for retirement, and, and, and you know, then I need to get from here to there. But wherever we are along our journey, once we welcome Jesus into our journey, we are exactly where we need to be. In truth, I believe by scripture and by plain reason that Jesus rose from the dead and if he could do that, there's nothing that he can't do. <clears throat> so no, I don't, I don't think that this is just an allegory. I don't believe it's a legend. Now I understand that the resurrection of Jesus is a difficult pill to swallow. In fact, it's an impossible pill to swallow on your own. But there are two things that I want to tell you before I close. First, I want to reintegrate that skepticism is not ungodly. Skepticism is when our logical brains are trying to hold on to the shock of what we just encountered in the spiritual realm. We've seen something that doesn't make sense. And try as we might, we will never understand all the complexities of God. Like I said a couple weeks ago, we will never be able to fit the uncontainable God in our three-pound brains. That's just not going to happen. Jesus won't fault us, though, for our doubt. In fact, one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas, he doubted and he refused to believe the testimony of what the other disciples told him, that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead. Thomas said, unless I see with my own eyes and touch the place where the nails were driven into his hands and put my hand to his side where he was stabbed, I will not believe. Jesus didn't abandon him. He said, you know what, guys, forget him. If you won't believe it, don't worry about it. Nor did he condemn him. He said, well, you're going to hell because you didn't believe me. Jesus met Thomas in his skepticism. And he delivered him through his doubt. And he did exactly what Thomas asked of him. Thomas' faith was strengthened as a result. And Jesus told him, blessed are you. You know, you, you believe me because you saw. But blessed are those. Blessed are those who believe and have not seen. You know, Jesus... He's not about to condemn us if we doubt. If we have a season of doubt, a moment of doubt, but we also need to recognize where that doubt is coming from. Satan is trying to distract us and he's trying to get us to keep our eyes off of Jesus and and, and onto ourselves because he knows that that is not the answer to the abundant life that God has promised us. So first, I want you to understand skepticism is not ungodly. Second, I want you to know that belief isn't created. It doesn't generate when we get all the facts. Faith is a gift. God gives us the ability to believe whether we have the facts or not. For example, a man with a paralytic son once cried out in desperation that Jesus would heal his son. He said, I believe, Lord, help me with my unbelief. Now, this is a good prayer to pray because it acknowledges that without God, we cannot believe as we ought to believe. So for those of us who have faith, we dare not be arrogant about what we didn't do on our own. 
It is by the power of God through the Holy Spirit that we believe in Jesus. And this should cause us to have patience for those who feel they require a little proof. Maybe even a little patience for ourselves whenever we have this season of of skepticism. God certainly has patience for us. You know, God will help us with our doubt if we will ask him to. And just imagine, if Jesus can really do all these things described in Scripture, what do you think he can do with your life? Trust in him and you too will find that you are exactly where you're heading. For if you're with him, even if you doubt, you are exactly where you need to be. Hey, thanks again for listening. We pray that God blessed you through this message and has given you a clear direction for your life. Please remember to download our church app by searching FBC Rungi in Google Play or iTunes. And remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you never miss another message. If you have any questions about today's message, you can contact us via Facebook or Twitter or use our website. Until then, we hope that you share in our vision to help people take root, grow, and bear fruit. And if so, then let's get out there and get to work.